This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hi there! Welcome to another episode of Tabletop Genesis. This is Mike Lord, your host. This is Tom. This is Stacy. And this is Simon. And we are here to talk about a little album called The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. <laughs> Woohoo! Woohoo! We are, uh, it's funny, when we were ordering the order of the podcast that we wanted to do this in, kind of the obvious thing was to do the po- do the lamb last, but we decided not to do the lamb last. We're actually going to do trick last of the main Genesis albums. Why did we decide on that? Just out of I think just to be different. Um, <laughs> and actually, Tom and I were talking that um, I think the trick is a, hap- a trick is a happier album. Yeah. And so maybe it'll be nicer to kind of wrap up that part of this podcast on a happier album than a kind of darker, strange, weird album like the lamb. Maybe. <laughs> so sure, yeah, why that's, not? that that was our post hoc rationalization for doing it this way. <laughs> so, so anyway, so this is uh, the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Simon, why don't you l- let us illuminate us with what Wikipedia has to say in brief about this album? Okay, I'm well, sure, there's a lot. First off, let me just mention uh, to the uh, listeners out there, we're going to break this album down into two episodes. Yes. We're going to have one episode that will focus on what is essentially the first two sides of the vinyl. I'm guessing that everybody's happy with that. And then the second episode will go out um, a short while later, which will talk about the last two (laughs) sides on the uh, the vinyl. Yes. Um, And then there will be some kind of song and dance number. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Just like the lamb itself. Yes, exactly, yeah. So sorry, yeah. um, I had to sort of interject just no, in case people just in case people thought that they had yeah. to block out an entire afternoon yes. or I mean, evening. If we, if we talk two to two and a half hours about a normal regular LP length, you know this would be a bit much. Yeah, <laughs> a yeah, four-hour yeah. episode might be a little yeah. hard to listen to. Do we all have our diapers on? I well, I have it normally anyway. <laughs> okay, so. good. All right, we can begin. Okay, so uh, going back to the Wikipedia entry for The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is the sixth studio album by the English rock band Genesis, released as a double album on the 18th of November 1974 by Charisma Records. It is their last album recorded with Peter Gabriel as their lead singer before his departure from the group in 1975. A concept album, comma, it centres on a journey of self-discovery by Rail, a Puerto Rican youth living in New York City, and the bizarre incidents and characters he meets along the way. Well, that was a bit of a try explanation, wasn't it? <laughs> that's, that's maybe, but it's a pretty solid one-sentence description of this Yeah, album. more power to whoever oh, yeah. it was that put their life on the line trying to do that. Yeah. Um, during the writing and recording sessions, Gabriel temporarily left the band to work with William Friedkin which, along with his insistence to write all the lyrics, put strains on the rest of the band. If you're not entirely sure who William Friedkin is, he's the director of the... Was it The Exorcist? The Exorcist. So he's a film director, basically. The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway was released to initial mixed critical reception, 
uh, though it has since received critical acclaim. It peaked at number 10 on the UK album charts and number 41 on the US Billboard 200. Two singles were released in the UK, Counting Out Time and The Carpet Crawlers, while the title track was released as a single in the US. Genesis supported the album with their 1974-1975 tour across North America and Europe, playing the album in its entirety across 102 dates. The album continued to sell and reached gold certification by the Recording Industry Association of America in 1990 for shipment of 500,000 copies. La-dee-da. So this is an interesting album. So, <laughs> so what are what are people? That's saying? like saying the Titanic was just a ship. That's right. So it is. This is an album. It's. I don't know if if you can really describe it as divisive, but it's definitely an album that has its its followers and people who kind of say like, yeah, I never quite could get into this. I. I go up and down with this album where I always think it's good. I've never thought this was a bad album in any way, but there are times when I think, oh, this is the best thing they ever did, and other times where I'm like, oh, it's it's really solid. I like it a lot. And I think in this time frame, I'm in the I really like this album a lot time mode. I'm not necessarily in it's the best thing they've ever done. I think it, hindsight has, this album has a lot of advantages because I think after you've listened to Genesis probably your whole life for the last 40 years you go back and you look, look at something like the lamb and it probably rates a little higher than it might have at the time when it came out because they were going right from selling england a nice concise album with as steve would say kind of airy fairy themes and mm-hmm. they took a 180 degree departure and did an album that for all intents and purposes is set in reality the real world <laughs> new york city going from a colorful kind of background to now it's just stark black and white very bleak and a double album which i think when you set out to put out a double album there's a lot to you have to back it up with like you're saying we have enough great stuff to fill two albums and the listener's like all right prove it to me let's let's see and and at the time it might not have been received so well but i think looking back it, it holds a big place in genesis fans hearts and as like you said mike Sometimes I'll listen to them like this is great, and other times I'm like, all right, yeah, it's all right. There's better albums. Yeah, I mean, I have a I have a strange relationship with this album. Um, I first listened to it as a young woman, uh, late teens, early twenties, um, and the two things that initially struck me was well, once it, it was just so much to take in. Yes, it was it's almost suffocating sometimes mm. to listen to. There's so much going on. I mean, not just the sheer length of it being two LPs, but um, in each track themselves, there's this density to it. Um, the second one, again, being a young woman, um, the, uh, the lyrics are pretty creepy, um, and yeah. cringy. Um, so I wasn't sure what to do with that when I heard it. Um, and even as an old woman now, uh, I still am. Older, older. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I still have some, yeah, this is the hardest album for me to ever really get into because of that. Um, it's written by a 25-year-old who had some issues dealing with sexual Clearly. Things of a sexual nature, I think. Yes. Or he was working through some things on his own, right. which came out in the lyrics. And sure, and fine, and great, but... <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it, it, it would be weird, I think, to kind of... Yeah. You know. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, you guys probably can't relate, but um, I think we relate. I would say I relate in a different way, where yeah. it's like, oh, this is this is weird. What was this guy going through? Right. Right. So I relate because when I first heard it, I was also a young woman. Yeah. So I, I was going through a lot, but like I was 15 when I got this album. So I'll say, yes, I relate to it. But as Stacey said, like there's a density to this album yeah. just from opening up the LP and seeing this story yeah. from Peter Ooh. Gabriel, which so many words, you, so many words, you read it and you begin to think, is it me? Should I be understanding this? And is there something wrong with me because I don't and everyone else gets it and I'm someone who doesn't. Let me really put some effort into understanding what the story is and don't. Just yeah. <laughs> it's Peter being Peter. It's like a dream being explained where all of a sudden you're on a carpeted corridor, the next thing you're with three snakes. Yeah. And you're like, it's as bad as interesting as when someone else tells you what the dream they had, which is Yeah not but mm-hmm. <laughs> it just opens up this whole world which i said was exciting when i first got into it because i had gotten this late in my genesis collecting and mm-hmm. to have this double album with the story and four sides of songs i'm like this is awesome but yeah. it was a, a trek a to get through yeah i i always with hindsight i view this album and obviously none of us were kind of you know, music consumers when this album came out in 74. So we all came to this a bit a bit later. I know that for me, kind of looking at this as a fan, it, I, there's much more of a through line from Selling England to Trick with this album kind of dropped in the middle, almost like it's a different band. Mm-hmm. And it feels, sonically, it sounds very different from the albums on either side of it. Arrangement-wise, it's actually a bit, I think, more straightforward than the music on either side of it. Um, and Stacy's making a face at me right now, yeah. but but I say straightforward in the in the way of that it feels a little undercooked to me, whereas those albums sound diff like complete. Right, and I think the nature of the fact that they had to come up with Produce so much some. material, yeah. this all does sound yeah, like you said, not fully formed yet. Yeah. But I see this as actually I hear a lot of. Selling England and mm. um, Trick in this okay. album, and you know we yeah. talk about the individual tracks. Yeah, you know, if I might bring that up, but I I, I actually see this more as a, a transition. It is, it does stand out. It's unique, and you know, given what I just said earlier about my you know initial reaction and some of the you know the connotations that this album yeah. has for me, um, I I do love it. I yes. think it is one of the most outstanding albums ever made ever because mm. um, it is so unique and probably one of the best concept albums mm-hmm. to ever come out. Um, to, speaking to your point there, actually, um, about concept albums, I think that this album um, is a glorious exercise in ambiguity and overreaching. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> That Explain. should be the tagline. Yes. That should slap that on the album yeah. covers. For Five this. stars. We, we actually put that in Wikipedia now instead of that other first line in there. So it, it is great. I mean, I, I had my kind of uh, conversation about where it stood presently, but this is an album, re-listening to it for this podcast, I'm like, it's it's a fantastic album. And when I say that it's it's kind of lowered a bit over time, but will probably also go up again at different times, that's just the ups and downs of personal feeling about this i think it, it always changes based on where you're at in your life and this album has always been kind of a go-to oh i i enjoy listening to this um i have to tell a bit of a personal story here just about 
when I was a teenager, I think I may have mentioned in previous shows, the this first concert. I'm getting there. So <laughs> the the first show I ever went to was Genesis at Giant Stadium in 87. And it was me and a couple high school friends and one of our friend's fathers drove us to the show. And on the way back, I was of the group of us, the biggest Genesis fan. And so one of the kids goes, uh, so what was that old song they played, that in the cage thing or whatever? And I said, oh, well, that was part of this this album, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And it's a concept album. And he said, oh, well, what's the story? And I was like, I, I, I can't describe it right now. Uh, because we're driving back. My friend's dad is in the front seat. I'm like, how do I describe this, <laughs> this thing? And I'm 15, 16 years old, however old I was. And I'm like, I can't talk about all this stuff with this friend's dad right there and everything. But this friend of mine is just like, no, tell me the story. Tell, why, why won't you tell me? Come on, just tell me, the, just tell me the story. And I'm like, okay. It starts out with he's, uh, this character, Rail, walking, and he's in New York, and this wall comes. And I go through the entire thing, and I try to kind of finesse some things later <laughs> in the story about castration and whatever. And he's like, no, what are you saying? What, what, what's happening? And I'm just like, <laughs> welcome oh. to the club. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm just like, all right, I have to talk about this. And I'm probably getting redder and redder talking about this because I'm like, oh, I'm talking about castration in front of my friend's dad type of thing while he's driving. And I'm like, is anybody that interested in this right now? I, I, was, I tell you, I hate yeah. it when I have to talk about castration yes. in front of parents. <laughs> all you should have said was, imagine a English public school boy writing about being a punk in New York City. <laughs> yeah, something he has no idea <laughs> This about. is exactly how I would picture an yes. English yes. man writing right. about Right, of course. People, people talk about their previous fantasy lyrics yeah. being disconnected from the world. This is even more so because they had even less knowledge of the world that they were writing about. A Puerto Rican street kid named Rail. It's so cute. Yes, and his brother John, not even Juan, but John. And it's just like, all right, this is interesting. They obviously came from the Hamptons. Yes. Yeah. yeah, of course. I always like Peter Gabriel whenever he's asked about this album. And he goes, well, it's kind of like a Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm like, like that even tells anything about this. It's like he, he kind of, I always get the feeling that he... He wants to talk about it, but he doesn't really want to say this is exactly what no, I was Yeah, thinking. no artist wants to do right, that, yeah. especially one that, you know, I'm pretty sure this was maybe 70 to 85% chemically induced, so he just know. might not I mean, remember. He was never a big druggy guy, though. You don't know that. Uh, well, it is going by <laughs> self-reporting. I'll, I'll be but... honest with you, that I can recount a story which... Um, uh, uh, with regards to that, which is um, by Amanda Gallo. Okay. In his book, and he recounts a, a tale where um, he was over at uh, Peter Gabriel's house, and I'm going a little bit off track here, but it's to answer your mm -hmm. question here. And uh, some some weed came out, mm -hmm. and at the end of the meal, and they're all smoking, and uh, Peter Gabriel got up and went into the kitchen and started washing the dishes, mm -hmm. and Amanda Gallo sort of came out, and, and I'm paraphrasing the story sure. here, but um, he sort of like said, you know, you. Do you not want to join us? He said, "No, it's not really my thing, to be honest with you. I, you know, I'd far rather get the washing up done." <laughs> um, and I, I genuinely think that um, while there was, you know, they weren't. It wasn't unknown to yeah. the band to um, to in, in, imbibe some illicit substances. Yeah. I genuinely think that this was an attempt for him to confront both s some elements of sexuality and also adulting. Yeah. 
because he'd just become a father for the first time. Sure. And I think that there was a lot of people there suddenly having to face the fact that they were growing up. Yeah. We can certainly psychoanalyze Peter Gabriel with this album. Because we are completely mm-hmm. yes, qualified we are, of course. Yes. Right, exactly. We've never met him in, I mean, in any extended period of time for anything with this. So, you know, but maybe we can talk to him at some point about this. Maybe yes. he'll finally open up to us about what this is all about. I know that Phil Collins has said that he loved this tour because he said he just smoked a joint before the show. He would put on his headphones and he would just drum for two hours. <laughs> and he was just like... I just would sit back and let the show happen around me and I would do what I had to do and it was he he enjoyed it because he didn't have to think about it that much. So over outside of Calling All Stations, it seems to be the album that the band talks about the least. I don't know why that is and I would hesitate to speculate, but the bottom line here is that it's the one album where no one ventures any opinions about this album. Nobody was happy during this right. album. It, I don't think yeah. it brings back a lot of happy memories of the recording, especially with what Peter was going through with his daughter and just the dynamic of the band with him being in one room doing one thing and the rest of the band being another. I mean, for one, I, I, given where they were in their popularity and, and their creative uh, the creative route that they were taking a double album was a logical step at this point they had done the 20 minute song with mm-hmm. Supper's Ready they had done kind of a concept album with Selling England so where do you go from there let's do a double album let's make it a concept but I think the process of doing that was so arduous on all of them that even when they toured the fact that Peter was leaving I think it had to have been the end for them like that there was no other way they could go except for peter leaving and for them to reinvent themselves yeah but as a last this is the the encompassing of the last four years that we've worked together Mm -hmm. we're going to give it our all it was i think it was a good way to finish with peter leaving i think if he had stayed it would have been worse It, it kind of worked out yeah there were tons of ideas on this album this is not an album that was lacking for musical ideas or or lyrics or any i mean there's tons of lyrics on this album so there's there's a lot of stuff going on here that you know it's it always you look back and you say oh could it have been a little better could you know some people think that you know side three kind of gets a little bit kind of iffy and then it comes maybe back towards the end or whatever but i've i've kind of grown over the and i think i thought that at one point but i've kind of grown over the time that i think this is one piece of work and it really doesn't dip later in the album for me it really is as consistent as it was earlier so it's just it's maybe not as quite as accessible as some of the songs were earlier on but it's definitely it's all I don't see it unfolding any other way than it did. It's funny you should say that because I've never ever seen it as a one piece of work. Okay. I've always seen it as four separate episodes. Okay, like each side being its own unique thing. I could see that too, and that's that made sense in my structure. You know, and I'm well. coming from a you know I'm I'm old enough to remember yeah. both Romans and uh, <laughs> and vinyl, um, and you know I, I've always seen this. We were talking with uh, myself and Stacy about mm. this about do you see this as four sides or, mm. or two parts? And yeah. Stacy being brought up on in the CD world, you said you two parts. It's two two discs. Yeah. So I I always thought of it as kind of two bits. Uh, sorry, three bits. The first part. Is I'll the, come in again. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought of it as like I know sides one and sides two 
like the back of my hand. Sure. When it gets into three and four, I'm a little iffy. So I always figure like the first two sides are a concise album, which almost could have been a great single album. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into three and four, there are some good stuff, but it's a little weaker. So I think it kind of works out that we're splitting this into two and just mm-hmm. talking about sides one and two first and then three and four later. We're going to get you thinking three and four are the best part of this album by the time <laughs> it's all done. As the meme goes, change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our goal now. I think now, with our preamble done, we'll now slowly tinkle the ivories. Tinkle the ivories? Yes. Tinkle the Irish? We will tinkle the ivories into The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. This is a this is a great track to start with. I mean, it's there's something about Tony's piano that just kind of really sets the stage for me. And the little buzzing that happens, that's kind of a guitar noise. It sounds like a bee or a fly buzzing around. That's it's, not fly, because that's yeah, not fly. Yeah, fly on the windshield. Yeah, it's it's just kind of a it puts you in a different world right away. It's a very theatrical opening. Yeah, and it yeah. works for me. It sounds like an overture yeah. with lyrics. Right, like you can picture if they were making a movie of it, you'd have Mm -hmm. a camera at water height going towards the city. It's setting the stage. And I think we've talked about this on other previous episodes, but Genesis really knew how to start an album and grab you from the start. So you figure the last three albums, you had Watcher of the Skies, Mm -hmm. Dancing with the Moonlit Night, and now this. I mean, they just, they knew how to do that and how to grab you. And yeah, it just sets the scene for this play, this uh, Ulysses, whatever you're going to see for the next four sides. Yeah, it's it's a great intro. Maybe because I really heard this a lot on Seconds Out, I always kind of feel like Pete comes in too early singing because Phil on the Seconds Out version, they they play kind of the, the riff a little bit more yeah. before he starts singing. So Pete just jumps right in there. Um, but that's just my own personal reaction to this. I find this to be... You know, a really good delivery on on Gabriel's part. It's one of their most mm-hmm. iconic songs. Yeah. yeah, and I do actually hear this on the radio every once in a while on the New York mm-hmm. stations. So uh, not very often, but and I don't think I ever heard it before. I heard it on the album, but you know, as time goes on, every once in a while it'll be like, and that was the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. You know, back when Peter Gabriel was with them, and it's like, oh, it's nice to see. You don't hear Gabriel era Genesis on the radio that much. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that this is a song that at least might make people go, what? 
Peter Gabriel was in Genesis? And that, what, didn't Tony say it was kind of the last track they all wrote together? That he and that he, he and, and Peter. He and Peter, Peter wrote, wrote together. Right. And in chapter and verse, he says it's the last song they wrote together. So. It's kind of sad. Yeah. And of an error. But it's the first <laughs> But it's the first song on the album. Right. So and it's it's a it's a classic Banks Gabriel song, I would say. So um I think everybody's firing on all cylinders here. You know, it's this album in general, Mike's bass sounds very different than it has on the other albums. I, I don't know if it was a different instrument or if it was just processed differently. Yeah, I noticed that too. It sounds thicker. Yeah. Like it's real fat and yeah. yeah. It's very guitar-y in yeah, some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, For me though, I just think that this is a blatant no reply at all ripoff because it has the same <laughs> cross-hand technique. Exactly, yes, you know? they went in a time machine. Yeah, we're going to copy the song from... <laughs> Tony, Tony had written the song already yeah. and No Reply at All and well, said, oh, I can use just, this. This, yeah. was just, this song was just purely a run-up to No exactly. Reply at All, really. Well, yeah. really, everything they've ever done up until No right. Reply at All was a run-up to No of Reply course. at All. It's the pinnacle, so. <laughs> no, I, no I, horns on this track, though. Yeah, it's exactly. Sadly. I, 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 I hear what you say uh, yeah. with, about um, Rutherford's bass. It's yeah. got an almost twangy kind of yeah. sound, almost like a... Uh, almost a almost a Dick Dale sort of like kind of sort of yeah, kind of rubber bandish yeah, in some ways yeah. in my head. Again, it's very non musical musical terms that you trying to describe <laughs> this, but it's just it it feels different than other Genesis albums. It does. And I think that you know going to what I said before, it really is unique in their canon that this is a that that this album sounds the way it does. You know, Steve's not super apparent on this, but he's kind of burbling around in the background there, which I think if the, if it wasn't there, it would sound a little weird. Well, that I, it would sound a little empty. I think he makes the sound on this album. Okay. He is the sound of the lamb. Right. And even though he's like so deep at, back in the mix that you forget he's on it, you know, most of the time, um, when you really do kind of, are able to focus in on him and his contribution. To me, mm-hmm. he is the sound. Mm-hmm. There the are times album. when, you, like you're right, if he, if he had just been brought a little bit forward in the mix, yeah. not front, but no. like a little bit louder, there are some times when he's just like, I don't know, musical terms, or like picking or doing weird things yeah. where if you all of a sudden listen to it, you're like, that's incredible. Yeah. That's like this weird background noise, which is just getting into your subconscious. But as I say, if it wasn't there. yeah, We often talk about... Uh, Tony Banks being uh, the main protagonist when it comes to sound design Mm -hmm. on the albums and textures but you can hear this is a great album to give you an example of of Steve really building a landscape at the back a sonic landscape Mm -hmm. at the back of the uh, of the the set if you will and I think somebody who who basically at this point probably knows I'm in a keyboard led band but how can I still put my stamp on things and how can I kind of make it so that while it's not going to be a screaming guitar solo in the middle of this song, it's still my contribution is there and it matters. And I think that's what, you know, in some ways they probably all had to fight for that in different ways, you know, with with the with the kind of Banks machine churning out material the way that it does. And, and this um, is this is one of the things that I think sometimes gets misunderstood. You, you get that sense that of Tony Banks being incredibly dominant in this band, but... Mm-hmm. You have to understand that most of the band members, however much they they might have disappeared off on solo mm-hmm. careers, or they all knew that Banks was a you know a, an absolute monster when yes. it came to creating good material. Yeah. 
he would have hundreds of ideas as Phil said you know it's like it was just and even at the even in that interview with Phil on one of the reissues it's like you can kind of hear the awe in his voice that Tony would just be like well if you don't like that idea I got these 10 other ones for you let's see what that is whereas the other guys had material but just not the volume of material and yeah and to bring it back to the track um um Bring it in. Um, (laughs) The, uh, you know, one of the things I love, well, I love Tony's, uh, the the piano intro, but I love that just the piano is featured so much throughout this album. I think more so than what they've done in the Mm -hmm. past. And it's so funny. It's like such an, he's using more of that acoustic sound um, throughout. So um, if you like the track, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, you're pretty much going to like the rest of the album <laughs> yes. because it contains all those elements we were just talking about, um, yeah. kind of. But this is like on steroids. <laughs> and I, I love the middle part of this where the rest of the band kind of pulls back and it's just Tony playing and, and Pete singing. The, the way the guitar comes in at the end, kind of that mournful lead line that, that works really well in the context of this song. There's... It is something that I imagine playing it is a bit of a marathon for for the keyboardist in particular, mm-hmm. you know, just with the amount of kind of uh, fingering and, and notes being played. But it's it works. It's it's a sound that you don't hear that much elsewhere in rock music like that. So it's unique. It is an interesting way to play a track because when you actually analyze a lot of it, a lot of it is single note lines all sure. interweaving with one yeah. another. Um, and um, that's a very uh, unusual thing to hear from a band. It, it happened a lot more during the 80s when the synths came in and they were all monophonic, but to actually have a song where everything has its own little place which weaves in and out of one another, yeah. almost effortlessly, but you can hear that this is a band that's been going for a few years and they know how everything fits together. Yeah. They, know how to, they know how to make a song like this work. Uh, I know on Gabriel's, one of his earlier tours, when he played this song, it was almost more of a guitar-heavy song as it went on. It was... And it's like, oh, it's... it's you go. You didn't just loop that. I don't need to do it again. But it's it was really just a... This is a song that I think could have a bunch of different arrangements to it. And because you can choose to focus in on different parts of it, you can probably do some sort of acoustic arrangement of this with no piano at all and have it work in some ways. Maybe having an acoustic guitar. It's because it has a very strong melody. Yeah. And I think that's something, again, that it's very easy to miss with Genesis is that what really makes their songs work is that they are songs. It's not just a bunch of bits thrown together and like, oh, now we have a song here and it's 20 minutes long. It's that oh, this is a song we wrote and we really thought about what the top line was and how that works with the chords and the melody and all that. So it sucks you in. And for a first song on a concept album, it's accessible enough that you're not going, oh, there are not penises being cut off yet. So I, I can <laughs> That's I can what I this. always think right. when I listen to an album for the first time. Yes. Wait for the penis. Right. Yes. Wait for it. Right. But we do get characters that never get mentioned in the rest of the song. We get Suzanne, whoever that is. We get the cab drivers. We get a police officer you know it's rail gets mentioned but it's it's kind of like oh here's your character and well this is a backdrop it's a i won't say a prelude but you know it's there to give you a sense of the volume of people in new york at that point the hustle and bustle Mm -hmm. and his place in it for his english 
as selling them by the pound was. <laughs> this is the polar opposite. It's almost like make intentional to say, all right, we're going to do, we're going to go across the pond. Everything's going to be New York, dirty, earthy. <laughs> and that's when you get everything that is, at least in the first song, you could see that. You could go out in New York City and see everything here. And of course, you move on to the next song and then it becomes a whole another. It is an outsider's view of America. That's a spot on way of describing yeah. it, yeah. And they, I think just in, in reinforcing that this is America, this is like you'll see references all throughout the album to American bands, American yeah. music. I mean, they end this song with On Broadway from yeah. The Drifters, which exactly. was an American band. And it's like one of the like half a dozen English music, sorry, American music references they throw mm-hmm. in. I think just to hammer home that, you know, we've left England, we've left mm-hmm. Knights of the Green Shield stamp and all that. Mm-hmm. Now we're like, yeah, we're really into it. Yeah. Basically, then, it was it stopped being Lord of the Rings and started being childish Gambino. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but but it does. It's funny. I always felt that those references kind of peter out pretty quickly by even before the end of the first side of this out of this of side one. Mm-hmm. It's like I think that the cage has the last of that in. Yeah, there. and then it's like oh, they could not resist the fairy tale pull, you know, <laughs> exactly. the mythology yeah, exactly. and, and their so their Lamia. their comfort zone, yeah, and that's just fine. It's just fine. Yeah. They keep trying to get out, and the lamia keeps pulling them back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ooh. Uh. All right, so now we will hopefully not suffer the same fate as the fly on the windshield. Something solid forming in the air And the wall of death is lowered in Times Square No one seems to care They carry on as if nothing was there The wind is blowing harder now Blowing dust into my eyes The dust settles on my skin Making a crust I cannot move in And I'm hovering like a fly Waiting for the windshield on the freeway moment where it goes hovering like a fly waiting for the windshield on the freeway into the full band coming in i can die a happy man every time i hear that (laughs) that does it for me every single time and i've heard that hundreds of times in the last 30 years i've been listening to it they were incredibly good at making uh moments into sound yes that definitely gives me a prog boner (laughs) (laughs) i thought it was a lady boner what about a lady boner now it's a prog boner it's a difference Feels different. All right. Well, anyway, the um, that's what he said. Oh, hey now, but yeah, and, and I know that Tony talks about Tony Banks says that too. That it may be the single finest moment of Genesis. Just that moment Is that what of he says? yeah, he says just that it, it works so well and it's just so fitting 
for the moment that he's like, oh, it doesn't get better than that. So it is very satisfying. Yeah, it is. So it's 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 great, and it is, and it feels like that's one of those things that it feels like a full band playing. Mm-hmm. Like you can't really say, oh, that's a Tony idea or that's a Mike or Steve idea or whatever. It feels like that it was from what they talked about, just them jamming on this idea, and it just comes out from that. That whole thing was set up by the first part of this song. Yep. This sort of plaintive guitar, almost a lonely guitar with a... And the zombie chorus, that's what I call it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds like zombies. Like... You know, the, it, there's like, it's actually like, it, to me it sounds like voices. All right. The, yeah, there's like I, I you know the high mean, yeah. the, the high range do, sound yes, is, yeah. is is okay. is but it is that moment where you, you get that it does set up that sense of yeah. anticipation yeah. before the the windshield hits yes. you know oh yeah I and this is the first uh, one thing I noticed going through this is and I might have thought about this before is that kind of the lyrics that are in first person versus third person like the first person I versus the third person this is happening to rail. But this is the one that it's like, the dust settles on my skin, making a crust I, I cannot move in. Like, it, for me, those are, I'm going to make a general statement that I'll probably find examples, counterexamples later on, but those songs that are the I statements draw me in a little bit more mm. than, because it is, it's, you're, it's making you feel part of the story. And so it's like, oh, this is in Rail's head now. That we're kind of seeing what's happening here. And this is the first kind of what-the-fuck moment of, oh, like, there's something happening that's drawing me into a different world because the first song was the intro. Now we're getting pulled into this, whatever this story is turning into. I don't know what's happening. I'm Rail. But something's going on that's not normal. And you can hear, um, especially in this track, the parts of which have been jammed and which have been which have been composed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the opening half to me sounds very much a composition, right. whereas the latter half is the jam, and they fit together perfectly. Yeah. Again, the skills of arrangement of mm-hmm. having these bits that you know they jammed uh, that they worked on, jammed on, you know, probably for hours and days, you know, figuring out oh does this bit go with that bit. If you hear some of the the tapes to go around in trading circles of the rehearsals for this you hear bits of songs that are together in one song but end up being two or three separate songs because they had these bits that they again at the start didn't know what they were going to end with but they knew they were strong pieces and this is one of those ones that it's like oh they would kind of jam on this for 20 minutes and figure out kind of like oh what are the what are the lines that work in there that will edit down to this it's almost like this song and the waiting room were those two bits that live that could kind of stretch out yeah. a little bit more than just playing what was on the album. Because yeah. when they did this in '76, which is awesome to see on the on the in mm. concert video, you can tell they're just having fun jamming and Steve mm-hmm. doing his own thing, and Tony's looking to see when he can start the keyboard descent into like the final mm-hmm. part of it. I mean, that's that and waiting room are probably the only areas where they were allowed to kind of yeah. like let's extend this for another minute or so yeah. and just see what we can do on stage as opposed to just copying it straight from the yeah. album. A band not known for jamming right. could actually have some of these opportunities here. Well, I think that's because they did the vast majority of their jamming in private. Yes. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't call it jamming. But, yeah. That's in the later song. I, that's what so. I'm going to call it from down. <laughs> that's my jam. Hey, you want to jam? Hey, whatever you do in your own life. Hey. Take your time there. So... 
But no, they, I, I think this is, I view this as the fir- the real start of the story. Yeah. So this is, you know, we we just got a little intro beforehand. All the leg kicking, is... dancing girls of exactly. Leicester. Yeah. <laughs> so when they do the Broadway version of this, that'll this will be like, oh, let's set the stage. You know, some wind blowing, newspapers going by, <laughs> and again, I get a look from Stacy about this. So <laughs> who buys newspapers? Exactly. Yeah. I know it's so old school with this. So uh... and to set the record straight, this song ends when the lyrics for Broadway of Melody. Correct. Begin, yes. As yes. opposed to all those reissues or the remasters that came yeah. out and had the, the track timing wrong. Yes. So, so this is... The nerds! Tell... <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, what are you petition for that? So. so for everybody, the official Broadway melody of 1974 starts now. This is a list song, as far as I'm concerned. It's just like, uh, you yeah. know, it's like, let's let's see how many references we can throw into American-ish type things. It's my favorite lyric on the album. It, they're great lyrics. Oh, yeah. it's And they actually, if you start singing along to it, it flows really well. Yeah. And, you know, it's it has a cool feel to it. It's the first of the da-dun, da-dun yeah. that does recur throughout the album mm-hmm. in different places. Mm-hmm. So and this is not a huge reference album, but there are some of these ones that this part shows up at the end of Lily White Lilith. Uh, tongue twister there. <laughs> and and it's great. I, it's it's a little transition it's kind of, you know, if you read along with the story, it's all these different visions of things in Rail's head, but it's fantastic. It's a great, it is a great visual. I love the, uh, the, the outro to Fly on a Windshield intro Broadway melody. It's just that trend. Mm. Oh, that, that to me, that to me is, I, I go back and forth on what's better, that or the, when they come in on Fly on the Windshield. Mm, sure. So uh, that's fantastic. And yes, this is, these lyrics are a list of, I guess American references from It's almost that time. beat poetry yeah. yeah. But it yeah. sounds so good. And that's you know, that's a comment I, I think I could make on most of the lyrics that Peter wrote for this album. He's focusing not so much on the on the meeting and story, but mm-hmm. how it sounds when he sings yeah. it. And I mm-hmm. you know, I think as a as a as a singer who is now has control of the lyric writing yeah. That is, uh, it makes total sense. Yeah. Um, a lot of Ronge couplets in this album. Exa- yeah, 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 definitely. This was payback for all the American audiences who had no clue what was going on on Selling Yes. Anyone. He's like, now I'm going to screw over the English people right. and just talk about Americans who even Americans probably don't know. Right, I was going to say, it's confusing the Americans in different ways. I had to Google a lot of these people in yeah. prep for the show, and, and some of their backstories are very not... Pleasant. Oh, so. Okay. So. so did you, when you were looking at these names, do they, they, they have something in common? I mean, I know most well, of these. I mean, they're entertainers. Marshall McLuhan is a writer. And- I mean, everything tied together to paint such a bleak picture. And I think pe- people looking at Times Square now, 
They see the Disneyfication Disney, Disney and the Broadway yeah. shows and everything's so light and friendly. But back in 74, this was this was a literal picture of how it was. Yeah. I mean, there were murders and graffiti and prostitution and drugs on every street corner. It wasn't a happy city at that no. time. No. I mean, so this was this was not a far stretch from the truth. Who's Carol Chessman? I never, that's one I never actually he was, looked up. was, I think, a serial murderer who was executed at some point. Only because I looked that up two days ago. Sure, okay. No, that's interesting. I, that's one of those names that, like, the other ones I was familiar with, but that's one that, that I never really kind of thought about looking up. I was just like, oh, that's probably just a made-up name. And there's something about when Peter starts using that subdued, almost whisper, when Ku Klux Klan, like, it almost like you have to listen closely, like he's sharing a secret with you about this world. Mm-hmm. And then he starts screaming again, and you're like, once you've it's listened in... and Peter Blossom and Bitter Almond. <laughs> <laughs> No, we have no coward singing. I, I, I love that kind of tone that I he need puts a in there. Yeah, it's like, oh. a Winston cigarette. That's that's a great little line. The way yeah. he takes yeah. that through this Howard Hughes in blue suede right. shoes, and then he just pushes on and goes smiling at the majorette, smoking Winston cigarettes. Yeah. That's a lovely little. Um, rhyming scheme right there. It's such there. a musical, yeah. you know. And that there. beat, it's that beat poetry element again. Yeah. And smiles and, and children playing with needles, needles and pins. I always thought that was a reference to that song, needles and pins. I suspect you're probably right. I think song. it is. It's also one of the things where I love that it goes needles and pins, and the moment he says the word pins. The key changes. Yeah, sure. Okay. Oh, right. that is yes. also yes. another um, prog boner mm-hmm. moment. So, in sorry, so is that kind of the transition to? Are we transitioning? So that little prog boner moment for Stacy is, is the transition to cuckoo cocoon. Wrapped up in some powdered wool, I guess I'm losing touch. Don't tell me this is dying, cause I ain't changed that much. The only sound is water drops. I wonder where the hell I am. Some kind of jam. Cuckoo, cocoon, have I come to do some for you? There's nothing I can recognize. This is nowhere that I've known. With no sign of life at all. I guess that I'm alone. I feel so secure that I know this can't be real. But I feel good Cuckoo, cocoon, have I come to do some for you? question about this track and this actually leads to a slightly larger thing on the album which is how they shared the songwriting duties Mm. Um, it was very obvious that um, Peter Gabriel wanted to write a lot of the lyrics in fact all of the lyrics and ended up Having to hand off, I think a few of a them, few. A little bit down at the least line. one, maybe two, is yeah. what I know. But so. this one, I always see this is very much a, in my own head, a Steve Hackett. Yeah, shoot. I think this is a guitar. His guitar piece is is what the base of this song is, and then I'm sure the melody and whatever might have been worked on by Pete or by all of them. But yeah, this is. And is this the last time we ever hear Peter Gabriel playing flute on the Genesis album? 
unless there's some later on. I know it was the first flute on this yeah, album, right. and there may be some in the Lamia later on, but this is... But there's not much on this yeah. album because, again, you know, maybe it not being a, an airy-fairy album in the English twee type of way. It's more of the airy-fairy American-Puerto Rican kind of way, I guess. So I love about um, the flute in this track is um, in contrast to what I, I think primarily the flute featured before this album was like, it was an accessory to the song. Sure. It was just to kind of fill in little nooks and crannies yeah. uh, um, in the arrangement. Where here, it's a you know pretty big part of the the melody line, yeah. and it's um, I just love the arrangement of it, and it just feels like it's it's actually part as a lead line yeah. pretty much here. Um, it's also a very ghostly kind of of track. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of these ones which you hear an awful lot of in the later heart, in the latter parts of this album, um, which which you get that sense of distance mm-hmm. uh, and loneliness, right. I suppose. But again, a first person song too, so you feel it a bit more. Yeah. So it it is, you feel a little bit isolated, you know, confused because you know Rail has had all these different things happening to him, and this is almost the first breather that he has now, where he's like, oh, I've been through this now. Where am I? What's happening? You know, I, there I, seems to be a lot of that of where am I? What's happening? Moments for Rail in yeah. in the uh, in the album. <laughs> he sort of like tends to be in in a, in essence when we were talking about Pilgrim's Progress mm-hmm. and that sort of almost Chaucer esque thing of, of people taking journeys, yes. which sort of changed them. And I like there's there's parts of this that are in a weird way comforting too. You know, looking at the lyrics, you know, I guess that I'm alone and I feel so secure that I know this can't be real. But I feel good, you know. It's, it's. He's very accepting of whatever is happening to him. Like he knows it's weird. He knows it's strange. But he's just kind of saying, "Well, I'll just go with the flow right now." So, which maybe as a listener, you kind of have to go like, "Okay, this is. I'm going with the flow here." So I don't quite know what's happening yet. Yeah, you get that sense that um, that Rail, the character Rail, is a bit of a leaf on the wind. Mm. I always thought this was like you have the first three tracks, which are really great. Yeah, you have in the cage, grand parade. Mm-hmm. This always seemed to be like this the speed bump inside one. Like okay. you, you're really barreling down with the first three tracks. This song kind of like puts the brakes on a little bit, and then you go back to into the cage. So I always found the song a little bit forgettable. Do you think uh, it's you because like, it's a acu- it's the acoustic track on this side? It just really didn't do anything it, like there's tracks that i will play from the lamb on their own because i want to hear what they sound like mm-hmm. cuckoo cocoon has never been one that i would right. play on its own just as part of listening to it okay i, I like it because it has a really strange melody yeah it's I, it's, a, it's an out there in fact there's a lot of out there melodies on this album yeah if it, and hearing this progression on the guitar it's like i don't know if if this is the melody I would have thought of <laughs> to put there. So, and whether that's Pete or all of them working, you know, with l- little things, because they, one thing that I know Tony has said is that they all worked really hard to get those top lines working well. So I think that probably the singer did come up with probably 90% of it, but I think they all kind of threw in their, their two cents with these things. It's nice so. to think that they had a, he, there was a support work of everybody working yeah, to make it. Yeah, trying to make it as good as possible. So we'll come to the first kind of slight breather of non-continuous music in this side and we'll now kind of get locked in the cage I got sunshine in my stomach 
just say the first thing that i will say about this is it's the first as you said just before this track started the first song to feature silence even Mm, albeit a very very little amount of silence it's been a through track right from beginning up to the beginning of um in the cage and then all of a sudden it starts and we have now hit what is effectively one of the most iconic genesis tracks in their discography right um it features as we were talking earlier on, it, it featured in almost every tour um, right up to the end uh, mm-hmm. once they started playing it live. Right. Um, and it's it's one of them, it, you know, it has that iconic white light moment on stage, mm-hmm. the I See My Brother John section, which I know this is going to sound silly, but I'd been looking at Genesis for years and been a fan. Mm-hmm. And then I was watching the Mama tour. Mm-hmm. And then I suddenly realised, He's wearing a leather jacket. <laughs> so it just never hit you before. It just that. never hit me. And I'd, look, I'm not kidding you. I'd been a Genesis fan for close to eight years before mm-hmm. I suddenly realized he's wearing a leather jacket. You're adorable. <laughs> I think that's the moment, not, not you describing this, but that moment on that video is when I kind of went, oh, this band is something different, like really different here. Just the drama in that. It, and you know, watching that back when they aired it on MTV back in the day, when before I was just getting into this band, I was like, "Oh, what what is this?" So you know, we were talking about the live version. Yeah. Do you find that the album version is kind of watered down after yeah. hearing so many different live permutations of the song? I don't know if if not knowing that this became the live classic yeah. that it did. If from this recorded version, or even hearing the recorded the the live versions from the Lamb tour, it's it doesn't jump out at you. Yeah. It, it's good. 
And I think it has the quintessential Tony Banks keyboard solo in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe one of the most perfect solos that he's written for the music that it's around. But I know that Tony has said in interviews that until they started doing it with Chester, it kind of didn't flow the way they thought it would. Mm-hmm. So, like, it always felt... And he's like, it's nothing against Phil, but it's just that Chester had a different feel for it that made it breathe a little bit differently, which I think when... Because they started playing it in 78 on the... Uh, and then there were three tour, and that was the first time they played it since the Lamb tour. And it did. It had a real different feel to it being a standalone piece of music then. So... Well, I think the Mama tour was, also, was my first exposure to the song and having just known songs from invisible touch or abacab or uh the genesis album when this point of the video comes up and you hear the bump 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 and the audience clapping along and then phil starting you know i've got sunshine on my stomach and go mm. i'm like this is some wild shit <laughs> I said, and just from the from the reverence that the crowd gave mm. this song i said there's there's gotta be a bigger picture to the song yeah and it was just i knew that it in the lore of genesis even though i might not have even known that it was played on every tour since and then there were three like i knew there was something special about the song mm-hmm. and, and so when i finally got the lamb yeah i think it didn't meet the expectations of the live version because i had played the mama yeah. tour so so much and and the, the double drumming and and chester and phil's work mm-hmm. together and just the energy of the live album um, the the studio version was a little bit lackluster, but then if you started with the studio version, that's it's a great tune. It's just the mm-hmm. comparison you really can't make yeah. because they're two different bands at that point. Well, it's like the middle part with the with the you know outside the cage, dun, 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 like it goes on the album version. It's a little bit too fast, and like doing it live, you slow that down just a little bit, give it a little bit more power that way. And it just takes what's a good song into, oh, this is a live classic. I'm sure this song has rarely been played on the radio. You know, it's yeah. not it's yeah. not a song that, you know, oh, it was a big single back in the day and so it's popular. This is literally a song that is classic because it was played live and it won the crowd over every time. For me as a musician, it has one of the coolest bits of songwriting that I've ever heard, mm-hmm. which is the opening section is in 3-4 it's in triplets mm-hmm. One, two, three, four. you know that it's that triplet kind of feel and then it bangs down into 4-4 four, four, okay. while there's still the triplet feel going on in the background okay. and that whole business um, as a musician that really did excite the hell out of me yeah. and I'm not entirely sure whether or not they even knew that they were writing Ooh. what would effectively become a, a, a classic at the time. I suspect they probably knew it was a strong song. Yeah. But again, this is a song which leads two separate lives. It's a song which is part of The Lamb Lies yeah. Down on Broadway, and it's that live track. Yeah. Because I genuinely think that Phil does a better version of delivering this track live. Mm-hmm. But there is a moment in the middle mm-hmm. section, the uh, Inside the Cage, I See My Brother mm-hmm. John, where there is a harmony uh, before he can be gone and he looks at me without a sound. Mm-hmm. There is the moment where the harmony comes in sure. and they have never done a better job live than, right. than that moment in the studio. Yeah. That harmony sends shivers down my right. my spine. I yeah. always thought of that as a little, little Beatles. <laughs> little Beatles yeah. reference and, there. And that's the thing. It's yeah, like, musically. this is, you know, after kind of getting past all the kind of the 
the love of the live version to kind of say like, okay, what do I get out of this studio version? There are those little moments that it's just like, oh, this really works on album too. And as Peter delivering it and the lyrics are great, you know, again, what, what does it mean really? Uh, it's a lot of, he's in a cage, but it's like, but there's just such a descriptive nature to that, that you do feel a little paranoid, a little closed in listening to this. I have heard people talking about the fact that um, it's the moment where it's a moment of birth that mm, in the cage okay. being the womb. Okay. And you come out of the cage, outside the cage, you see my brother, John. Okay. You know, that kind of sort of... I never thought of it that way. That's yeah. good. Um, but that's, I'm not saying that that's the way that I've just no, heard people yeah, talking like about that. I that interpretation. That, you know, that's interesting. You know, the birth of twins, that yeah. whole business, you know. Mm. Uh, which again harks back to Cuckoo Cocoon, which yeah. is the, you know pr- the the track where they're yeah. inside. But that's that's all just it's it's just an interesting sort of like little yeah. thing. No, know. I'll take that. I'll uh, I'll enjoy that. It has another reference. Raindrops keeps uh, falling on my head. Yes, you know, which again is another kind of American. You know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid type of song, and you know, which I always thought was something from Broadway, and then I really kind of thought, no, that's actually. Like, it wasn't from anything before that movie. And I was like, oh, it's it's kind of funny that all these things that I kind of assumed were kind of Broadway references really aren't. It's pop uh, culture references of the time. Issue, really. Yeah. Right. My Little Runaway was... Just on run- that's right. 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 Yeah. Another one, Just Like Needles and Pins. It's all <laughs> coming together. I will be curious when we talk about Tom's big poll at the end of this about where this song will land on it because we spent the first five minutes talking about the live version of this, not the album version. So if this song gets a lot of love, I wonder how much of that is from the live version being carried over to this. I think a lot of people just mesh kind of the two together. Like they have their memories of the live version, but it all becomes one because it's the song is the song and the lyrics make the song. I've got sunshine in my stomach. So of course that's Peter. Mm -hmm. So like there's so many contributions to the song as a whole that I think people don't really consciously separate the live version from the studio version. But so if it gets high in my poll, then I'll take it. (laughs) I I think, I think Tony may have said this in our interview with him. I, but if not, it was in another interview where he talked about that. This was a song that, you know, could be, perform because it is like besides the, the brother john bit in the middle you can kind of understand it without knowing the story yeah. and i'm like really <laughs> i mean that was just kind of going through my head what does that say about that. the rest of the lyrics right i'm like i'm like <laughs> Re- this is well tony you're on the inside looking out on that yes. one <laughs> but that's the thing I, I think it was funny that that's in some ways that's the bit that kind of connects to me emotionally more than anything else in this as I a standalone yeah. well because there's a there's kind the of visual. a core well there and there's kind of a chorus yeah you know he he does repeat in the cage quite yeah. a bit and right. so maybe that's what tony's referencing yeah. um and it, it is it does follow kind of a, a narrative yeah um where instead of reading lists of names like broadway melody and <laughs> yeah. and being in a, it's a good structure yeah. do you know the other thing about the structure on this song and it's something which not, not a lot of people notice is this absolutely no resolution at the end meaning yeah. the tension remains from mm. beginning to end and right. there's never a release okay 
Yeah, because doesn't it just kind of fade out? Yeah. Yeah. And even live, they go into another section of another oh, song. Right. And uh, yeah. so, you know, as a song structure, it's a very unusual thing because it never releases, it never finds an end. Yeah. And it does have, this is the first on, on the album, it's the first one that has one of the little interstitial pieces, the bum, 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 the little floatiness at the end, yes. that, that actually on the third and fourth sides those are kind of almost titled separately with silent sorrows and ravine whereas here it's just as lawn of a little piece but it is kind of indexed titled as part of in the cage yeah i always kind of wanted them little like they should have played that somewhere too just a little tony you do you do like your uh, i do like the little musical bits your vocal cover i like to see this is great because i've never heard the album before so when you sing it i know it's just i want to make sure people know what i'm talking about here so but no this is i i love this and and i will say though listening to the studio version i do phil's little vocal fills in my head of the in the cage oh get me out of this cage and so it is part of that so well i guess that it's probably time to move on. Everybody say it together now. The Grand Parade of Life. Come on, everybody. All right. The Grand Parade of Life's <laughs> lifeless packaging is the next track. It's the last great invention left to mankind. Screams a drooping lady offering her dream dreams less than extortionate prices. And as the notes and coins are taken out, I'm taken in to the factory floor with the grand like Genesis so progressive um, in 74 using auto-tune oh, um, yeah. first time I believe did they call it something different back then uh, Eno uh, machine Enosification yeah. that's right it's a, actually that's a good uh, opportunity for us to talk about this because it Brian Eno I again much like the, the leather jacket I didn't mm. realise that he'd been involved in this album until years after the oh. me actually buying it until I don't know, I finally relented and, and read the liner notes. Um, and uh, this is an opportunity for us to sort of to discuss, because he's essentially, up until this point, was he the very first outside artist that they ever had 
in on the album besides the string players on from genesis to revelation yeah i think that's that's really the case it's so. an interesting thing to actually have someone although he wasn't strictly playing he was producing manipulating yes i mean thing, he was doing so. his his roxy music thing which is piping peter gabriel's uh, vocals through his synthesizer to get that warbly tone yeah. So I, essentially, he's doing playing, I suppose. Yeah, maybe? treatments. I treatments, think is how they yes. always described it. And I know that, like, I always go back to what Tony Banks says. He always he's he's a little bit dismissive of oh we maybe we shouldn't have even credited him because it was just twiddling some knobs. But it was also. But I also know that he's very complimentary of what he did on this track too, because it was here and maybe a little bit at the end of In the Cage with the deeper voices and maybe back in new york city here and there and the kazoo on this track is just sublime (laughs) (laughs) but this is a great a great example of what um i just think that this is a classic lamb track yes in that it is again one of these songs which has no real hook Mm -hmm. it just begins and it ends in fact all it does it starts very Quietly mm-hmm. and ends very very loudly. It's a great build throughout oh, the entire. Yeah, yeah I always pictured a factory and an assembly line at this beginning of the day. You got to start the assembly line. It starts rolling. It gets faster and faster, and That's finally it's up to day. speed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I pictured way the, the way that the music follows mm-hmm. the 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 factory starting up and all of a sudden coming to life. That's kind of like how this track ends and. It just builds up and builds up until you know he's screaming at the end the lyrics and mm-hmm. it's he's got to scream because he's got to talk over the factory noises. So I mean that's yeah, yeah, given. It's yeah. a fascinating thing and and in the storyline I have no idea what this pertains exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. It's just a, it's it's a transition to another state. It's I've always kind of thought about it as as being about you know being a cog in the machine yeah which you know Gabriel talks about again on Salisbury Hill you know he's he, i think this is something that was kind of on his mind like being a 25 year old in this band and the singer and going like oh am, i'm part of this machinery i feel like i'm trapped here mm-hmm. and that was again if we're psychoanalyzing Gabriel that's you know that's what he was trying to figure out how he fit into this into art into music in general yeah um the decor on the ceiling has planned out their future day. I see no sign of free will, so I guess I'll have to pay, yeah. pay my way. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's that's yeah. how I always interpret it, the yeah. same way you did, Mike. Yeah. Sure. But I think that, you know, with, with Eno, I, I wonder if, like, because Eno, I guess, was, like, in a different studio in the same place where they were kind of recording this, and they said, oh, can you come in and do this, and we'll send Phil up there to drum on your album and everything. And, you know... Albums. Albums, yeah, yeah. exactly. And... And if that was, if Eno hadn't been around, would they have called him up and said, hey, do this stuff? Or was it really just a matter of convenience? Hey, you're in the same building. Why don't you come help us out? I, like, I wonder, you know, if, if he had been recording his album somewhere else, would they have bothered to try to call him up? You know, what was that relationship? So We were discussing a little earlier on, uh, off mic, about the similarity in sound uh, of the Lamb to some of the Eno albums at mm-hmm. the time, like uh, Before and After Science, I think is the one that you mentioned, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you do, world, yeah. yeah. And if you do want to go and yeah. listen to uh, and have that kind of, I won't say Lamb lies down experience, but certainly mm-hmm. a, a related sonic landscape, mm-hmm. I suppose is the best way. 
go check out those two albums yeah. by Brian Eno. They're well worth, and of course Phil Collins is yeah. playing on those it albums is. as well. And I, I will just plug that pretty much any Eno I think is worth listening yeah. to. Even <laughs> even if you don't think you're into ambient music at all, I think it's great. I've actually been on Spotify putting on the Brian Eno channel on there at work and just kind of having it in the background, and it's great background work music when these pieces that go on for half an hour to an hour or hour that are just kind of floating in the background it's, it's kind of it it helps me at least it's an he's an astonishing artist in yeah. his own right and uh, probably deserving of his own podcast but <laughs> i am very glad in some ways that, that the world of genesis and the world world, world of eno intersected yes. and intersected at this moment like right. it, i can't picture Eno contributing to any other album right. that they've ever done Put like it was just like on trick of the tail or yeah something. no this yeah. was this was the right you know yeah. meeting at the right time right. the right sound of album yeah. too because again it sounds very different from other genesis albums and and this vocal treatment is one of those things that's very different about it so also very different is Hackett's guitar line in this, which I absolutely mm, right, love. The, right, the slow climbing. I feel does. like this. That's my favorite contribution he's done really? to this album. I love that so much, and it's funny. I think one of the reasons I love it is I didn't really notice it until I think I listened to this on headphones. Sure. Again, he's like mixed so low. Um, it's which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. I mean, we no conversation about the the lamb uh, can really take place without a conversation about the sound quality of the mm-hmm. album um, and this is a classic case in point because I always remember the last dying note because on vinyl this is the last track on side one yes how it seems to you get this sort of shuddering echo which almost feels like something disappearing down a plug hole mm. um, and I, that's one of the moments where I, I really thought to myself even the first time this album doesn't sound great yeah. Um, yeah. or at least the, the playing on the album the production is just there's something strange about it I don't know what it is they sounded much better on the album before and they sounded much better on the album mm-hmm. afterwards yeah. there just seems to be it all seems to be Middle range and no bass and yeah, treble. Yeah, they're like on it. far away yeah. and too close at the same time. I know it's a horror. No, <laughs> it makes it, no it sense, makes sense, but yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. Well, they've always said that they liked the sound of this album, weren't yeah. they? Because it sounded like you could actually hear more of what they sounded like live. Maybe. Yeah, it's, it's a little less produced in some ways, but that rawness also. Like, I, I do think, although, again, some people are hard, hard, hate remixes of any type, I do think that the remix of this from, from 2007 does open it up a bit and oh, kind of gets know. rid of some of, you know, the, I guess on, especially on earlier CD versions, there was kind of a low-level hum that ran through the entire thing, and, you know, the remix was able to get rid of that and just made it a little bit more clear while still keeping it a little bit weird, and it kind of restored some backing vocals here and there that got yeah, mixed, I'm, I'm either not... mixed out or mixed very low on on this version, uh, the original version. So. Well, anyway, it's a very silly yeah. song, and, <laughs> but it's great. It and is. yeah, I enjoy it. I think it it kind of. Uh, Why I, is Brother John number nine? Yeah, I always thought that was like. A nod to the Beatles. Yeah, I, nod, I, or, yeah. And it rhymes with shrine. Shrine. Oh, I see. It. It's a nod to the Beatles. Yeah. Or he, Here we have artistic, artistic merit and pragmatism. Yes, coming exactly. together. It's brilliant. 
<laughs> so yeah, but it's it's great. I think it's it's a good track, great track, and a great end to side one. And this is again another conversation which I think we ought to be having, which is the fact that some of these albums, I mean, especially when you get double albums, mm-hmm. the beginning and endings of sides have punctuation yes. which is lost once you mm-hmm. put it on a spotify playlist yes. or a, or a cd yeah. because this is the oh you want to keep you want to hear what happens next you better yeah. want to turn this over so you end on a on a, a high note metaphorically just saying hey this is what you want to hear what comes after this and what comes after this is that we're going to take a trip back to new york city i see faces and traces of Yes, or is this track seem to be a very contentious track amongst the Genesis faithful? You get a lot of people saying this is the best thing they've ever done, and other people going this is just window dressing. They're just <laughs> trying to be something that they're not. I, I don't know. I sometimes see things on on the internet, yeah. and there's a, there seems to be a lot of argument about this track. Mm. I love it. Yeah, I I love it too. I never got the feeling that they were trying to be something that they were not, and I think even the band says that they, w- they were never trying to meet expectations of something or copy some of their feel. They just did what they wanted. This was a track that they came up with. It was Mike's... Yeah, I think it's Rutherford's Rutherford's stuff. because he... It's a rocky thing. Because he so. does the metal. <laughs> yeah, he does the... He, he brings the, the metal. He copies yeah, it later in Cats and Rats from the solo album. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think this was just a track that it wasn't something that they were trying to do other than trying something new. Yeah. A heavier track, probably one of the heaviest that they've yeah, had sure. uh, up to this point. Peter's knife like Peter has shouty vocals throughout the entire thing, pretty much, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. I think the the divisiveness of the song is more about I think people who don't like this song are like kind of poo poo it are mm-hmm. they think people who do like the song really rave about it. I mean I think this is one of the most covered tracks yeah. um, on the lamb by mm-hmm. other artists. Or at least the most notable one um, that, you know, it it is because it's 
It's got a lot of energy. Um, it is kind of rock, more rocky. Yeah. And it's a highlight on yeah. the album. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, if there's there's something that other musicians see in it that make them want to cover it. Yeah. As you said, like I think the famous ones are Kevin Gilbert, mm-hmm. Francis Dunnery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Kevin Gilbert version is amazing. That is fantastic. Oh, is, Jeff right? Buckley. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of version. And I just—if so. you go to our Facebook page, I had posted a, t- a ten-year-old yeah. girl is playing this on a piano, just doing okay. an acoustic version of it. I saw that, yeah. Uh, just to give her props, Camilla Pakovi. Okay. So, if you're listening, first we apologize for the potty mouths, <laughs> <laughs> and second, keep going because it—it sounds awesome. I, I think we're the only thing that I even come close to criticizing about this 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 track is that the chorus is a little bit out of. I think the chorus doesn't necessarily fit the rest of the song, the whole as I cut it, the pork up, cut it, the porcupine bit. That's the chorus, it, is it? Yeah, that's I what I thought. Well, yeah, no time for romantic yeah. escape is maybe it a pre-chorus it then. It's, so. it's 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 repeated. Yeah. So it's the only part of the song that's repeated. Yeah. So it's a little bit kind of like out of left field in that respect, but it's the lamb. I mean, that's that's par for the course as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's to me that's that's a feature, not a bug of this song. That it does have weird mm-hmm. stuff in it. And if you think this is weird, it's gonna get weirder as it oh, goes yeah. along. This so is yeah, I do. I like that it kind of starts out and then briefly with that. Oh, it's kind of like in the cage, but it very quickly yeah. gets into. It's not just bum 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 bum. <laughs> and it's it's uh, I, I get I get excited about the drama of this music and and it's it's fantastic. This is one of those ones that if you don't sing along with this one, I think you have a problem. <laughs> I I find it difficult to sing along. Oh, I don't think I sing one. well with it. No, no, no. I, I meant just in, in terms of the content of the lyrics, but it oh. is a uh, yeah. It's a, it's, it is one, a fist-pumping crowd yes. pleaser. Strange that it never appeared much in, in Genesis's live tour. No, after, after The Lamb, uh, yeah. they played it in on the beginning of the Duke tour as the opening number. And mm-hmm. then it moved very quickly after the first three or four, it moved to the end as an encore because I think Phil would blow his voice out during oh, it. Yeah. And that's actually the tour where Phil turns from singing Phil into shouty Phil. Yes. And I think this song may be responsible for that. <laughs> because he but was did... that the only time it ever appeared that they ever played it live post, post-Lan tour? I think they... They may have done it once as an encore in New York or something, maybe on... Um, and then there were three tours or something like that, but I, I'm not sure about that. But it is, it was never cons- on. But when you consider how iconic this yeah, track is, yeah, it's kind of surprised that it's not. I, I think it's because it rips your voice to shreds. The demand, the vocal yeah. demand is just too much to do that yeah. every single night. I've even surprised that Hack hasn't broken it out on his tours. Like, again, in New York, I'm like, this seems to be an obvious crowd pleaser that would kind of you know especially in a new york show but it is interesting exactly how little guitar figures in this track yeah yeah it's not it's certainly well this is one of those tracks that always makes me go what exactly instrument is doing these different bits of it like it's it's the da 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 like that's almost like keyboard and guitar doubling each other i I suspect yeah i suspect that we're probably talking um, Hackett's probably doubling up in yeah. the same way that he did for Giant Hogweed. Yeah, sure. Um, there's that that sort of like because we've spoken long uh, and, uh, and and copiously on the whole business of how Hackett and 
Banks' sound can sometimes they intermingle. They can together. be in, the indistinguishable. Yeah. And this was the real start of that merging happening that gets even more so on Trick and Wind afterwards. So this has one of my best Genesis moments at the end when it's the, it, during the last verse, when it's the burn into ash. Yeah, it's it's so satisfying. That's it. Again, uh, not that I am into the prod boner phrase, but I will. But you I will were jamming. Give it, I was you jamming, jamming with that. that, so I was jamming along with that. It's so. a nice big slice of bombast. Yes, yeah. and it's that bass part of it. So you know, it's it's like ah, oh, this is great. And then kind of the bass pedals are even doing more after that, just making it sound big and huge. Yeah. And that's why I think like I'm shocked they don't play it more live because yeah. they do like the the big ball dropping like walls of sound <laughs> songs exactly. in their live set. But again, I go back to the lyrics. I'm sorry. Like maybe yeah. it just makes them uncomfortable singing and talking about you know particularly now yeah, the, chorus, the whole the whole kind of cuddling the porcupine yeah bit, or? and no time for romantic escape when no, your fluffy heart, heart is ready, is ready for, for rape, rape. Yeah. No and time. if you don't know this the story and you are you know just focusing on the words yeah. uh yeah it could it's triggering that it could so. be it could trigger first I, genesis I suppose... song that swears oh yeah yes shit oops <gasps> Oh, how detoured. How you fucking dare swear <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> no, I was listening to this song in the car. I had the Lamb CD this past week. And uh-huh. of course, the girls, my 10 and 8-year-old, are in the back seat. And Peter says, and I'm not full of shit. And I turn around and both their eyes were like, oh my God, what did he just say? And I said, fucking loosen up. Come on. <laughs> right? Come on. What are you, 10? Yeah, what are you, what are you 10 and 8? <laughs> When I look at this song, this is the one which I think really sets out the violence that that Rail has. Yeah. As, you know, yeah. his violence flashback. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, it, it's a sexual violence. Yeah. It's a you know, you think about if he's like a, a teenager in in a city like New York at this time. Yeah. This song makes total sense in the context of this album. Yes. Um, so I have no you know issues with that at all but it is that it goes back to what tom said about no son of mine where it's like you know the problematic sing-along yeah exactly (laughs) it's the it's like no time for romantic escape yeah (laughs) your fluffy outer is ready for rape what yeah no son of mine (laughs) yeah in isolation i could see that might be a little squidgy and this this actually lends uh, this actually sort of leads on i should say uh to something else which is I'm not entirely sure whether or not the narrative in this song was, or the narrative in this album rather, was ever supposed to be linear. No. No, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I want, well, this is again another question that I would have for Peter is like writing this story, like he had this idea for this kind of, you know, Pilgrim's Progress type of thing, but then the reality of where does this piece of music fit did that affect kind of where he put things in the story also? Or, you know, I know they wrote Carpet Crawlers because he said, I need a piece of music for this part, and these are the lyrics for it type of thing. That works, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was one of the last things written for the for the album, from what I understand. And so it's like, you know, part of it was, oh, lyrics influencing what music got written, but how much of it was, we have this really strong piece of music 
what works for that? Mm-hmm. What does kind of make sense? Ah, this is very New York-y sound, you know, really kind of violent and aggressive. Doesn't fit into the story, maybe, but if we talk about Rail's history, that is something that works. But it doesn't make sense to put this first. So right. And that's cool. probably why it wasn't played a lot, because it's out of context. It's yeah. Well, and, and, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but mm-hmm. it does... Um, you know, content-wise, and I guess thematically, flow nicely into counting out time. Sure, it makes yeah. sense uh, from a st- from a story perspective. Exactly. So. so, well, before we get to counting out time, first we have to shave that hairless heart. strange track this is it is it's it's the first titled instrumental on the album and why else is it strange the best way i can describe it is a sort of like a melodic murmur really i mean it has that sort of like lift with the uh with the mellotrons halfway through Mm. but for the vast majority of it it almost feels like the kind of thing you'd look out a window while traveling long distances in a car (laughs) Yeah, this is an Eno song, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like it was written for the stage show. It was like, we need oh. a break here. Maybe, you know, maybe Peter needed to do something backstage, change during <laughs> something. I, it is a palate cleanser, though. Yeah. I mean, the intensity of back in New York City, yeah. it, it's a nice kind of, yeah, you know, little, come down from Smoking from a cigarette. Yeah, like, smoking a cigarette, yeah. And I was, love, this is one of the songs where even though it's kind of like a, a connecting piece between two lyric songs. If it comes on shuffle and just by itself, I will gladly listen to yeah, it. I just, I just yeah. love Steve's, I think, good solo guitar work mm-hmm. finally yeah. starts to come through. And this might one of the first songs where they yeah, actually you know. hear him mm-hmm. straightforward in the mix and just, yeah. he's using that pedal, right, with his, yeah, with his foot. A volume yeah. pedal type thing. It's just really nice. And the, and the opening acoustic and then it goes into electric. Yeah. Like everything about this, I, I just love seeing it performed and, and it just creates a mood, which kind of goes oddly into Counting Out Time, but for the for the couple minutes that it's going on, it's really lovely. It's it's a beautiful little melody. It's rhythmically, it's pretty straightforward, but then there's like, I don't, I didn't count it out, but it seems like kind of Phil kind of, like it stretches out the meter periodically and it's like, or a beat gets dropped or an extra beat gets put in and it's, but it all makes sense in the scheme of the music which is great it's it's a nice it's a nice little tune it can be played kind of independently i know steve has played it you know kind of as as a 
separate instrumental, both kind of acoustically and with the band at different times. And it, it just works really nicely as, as, a, as a mood piece. I still think it's, a, it's an odd bit of music. Yeah. It is, a, you know, just for me, I don't know. It could very well be just because where it's placed in the yeah. album. And, of course, you definitely need something separating back in New York City <laughs> from counting out time. Right. Yeah, it would be I, weird I, if those two slammed into each other. That, that would be, be a jarring thing, really. No pun intended. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm leaving sure. that for later. <laughs> I, think it's, I think the strangeness comes from the distance between the sound of it and the name of it. You have a beautiful piece of music, and you give it the name Hairless Heart, yeah. which is so medically kind of <laughs> odd. Yeah, what pick. does that have to do with it? You know, it's... Again, unless you really took the time to read the story, which I'd be curious to know. Like, when I got this album, I was like, oh, what are all these words? And then it's like, <laughs> oh, there's barely paragraph breaks here. And yeah. it's like, oh, what's being told here? And it does actually a decent job of summarizing the story, but it doesn't tell you anything about the story. Yes. Yeah. And so it's it tells you what happened, but not the why of it, which, again, the why is up to you as a listener. Mm-hmm. So... But yeah, you I'm... sometimes wonder whether or not uh, there was a sort of a long period of uh, of time in Peter Gabriel sort of like hide away in, in uh, some abbey or monastery <laughs> and then all of a sudden you hear and go, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's give it a read. And the band crowding around going, well, well done, yeah. Peter. That's so, certainly a lot of words. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a story that I wonder... You know what? Uh, I still would love would love to see what the reaction was when because Peter must have sat down and said to them, "Here's my idea." If they voted on this over Mike Rutherford's Little Prince idea, which is really, I guess, the only other one even remotely in contention for this, if if they said, "Huh, all right, sounds good," or just like, uh, "Let's just go along because it doesn't." Like for them, was it? It doesn't really matter what the story is, right? Well, and to got... be honest, anything's better than in the that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah, I don't see that. But really coming back to this track, mm. I think that that's one of the. Uh, we're, we're talking now about the things that maybe started to divide them, yeah. Because this is a very much you can imagine the the four of them being in the room mm-hmm. playing together. And then Peter Gabriel turning up, going, oh, "I've got these lyrics. We well, don't need it on this song, right? You know." And I, I don't, yeah. you know, we're, we're, there will always be speculation and yeah. supposition about the intricacies and the difficulties that that went on with this album. Mm-hmm. And um, while there were definitely a lot of musical victories mm-hmm. here, um, when you put this album in context of what was happening in their private life at the time. Mm-hmm. You start to see that there's a there's a musical narrative that's being forged here, and you know there are a lot of instrumental pieces on this album. Yeah. Well, that's it's funny because we we always talk about or people about this album talk about that you know Peter was going through his first child being born that was not an easy birth, and I guess the child like had there were some issues around the birth, but but Steve was going through a divorce at this time, mm-hmm. so you know that's. It doesn't get forgotten about, but it's not always kind of talked about at the same level of what what Peter was going through. And so it's 
I think at least the two of them had some emotional turmoil happening. So, and I, I don't, I don't wish to speculate yeah. upon anybody's private life, you know, especially sure. not for entertainment purposes right. like this. I just mentioned it as content. Yeah, and, and I, I, yeah. I fully appreciate yeah. that you are saying it like that. I'm just talking about the fact that it's funny how, however much you try and and separate your mm-hmm. private life from your artistic life, it does feel as though some of it was bleeding through into the music. Yes. And the lyrics, I yeah. suppose. This this is a unabashedly romantic sounding piece, which does it fit between these two songs that are not romantic, really? I mean, romance in you know, romance, romance in in <laughs> romantic type you. of type of ways. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a it's a nice little tune. It does work. <laughs> yes. As I said, it just it's strange. It's, it's I find it a little bit creepy. Oh, interesting. Okay. That could be that could be purposeful too. Well with that we will count out time to the next track. Three, two, one. Hashtag no fap. <laughs> fap free zone. It wouldn't be a Genesis album uh, if there wasn't some thinly veiled sexual song on it. Um, and this is not that song. This is no, not thinly this veiled. Is, <laughs> this is in your face. Yeah, literally. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> out of my face. Oh my. This is. Uh, this was when I went into full cringe mode <laughs> when I uh, heard this album for the first time. Still does a little bit, but. Um, it's a good track, but it, it is come that, on. <laughs> but it is that that kind of teenager. I don't know what I'm doing yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. which again maybe as a 25 year old, maybe Peter was still that way, you know, <laughs> or was able to closely identify with that. Um, he had a kid. I think he knew what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope the. Um, but yes, I think that the. It's a great little tune. My understanding is that this is actually music and lyric is Gabriel's. Is that it's it's one of the few kind of just like solo the songs, farm right? Exactly. So and and it has that feel to me. I thought this was gentle... a Hackett track. Oh, not that I know of. I, think I thought this was a Hackett melody. Really? Okay. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure I, was, I read somewhere Peter. that this was all Peter. So. It's the, the other <laughs> interesting thing about this is it's one of the very few places on the album in which a sense of humor emerges. Oh yeah, it's mm, funny. Right. It's it's got a great. 
it, it harkens back to the early days of Genesis sense of humor with songs like Harold the Barrel and, and, other, and other songs that are meant to be humorous. Yeah. Uh, I wrote Jolly Fun. Jolly Fun, notes. the wordplay, the, the the way he rhymes different, you know, the ends of lines with the beginning of lines. Yeah. I just thought it was very clever the way he did it. And uh, just it took me until seeing the musical box do this live that I knew that middle instrumental part was not Tony, but actually Steve on guitar. Well, that's where you get the take it away, Mr. Guitar. Yeah. And yeah. that blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> was that your leather jacket moment? That was my leather jacket <laughs> moment. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... I I thought that, you know, this is... This is a nice little track that is, you know, I, I wouldn't say this is realistic in any way, shape, or form, but it is also, I could identify with the younger man reading a book and going like, oh, so this is what I have to do. Yes. Yeah. I could identify with that. So can I. I it's All more, right. You know, the, the thing is, <laughs> Thank you for taking up that man. You have to understand that, that from a male perspective, when you're that age... Tell me. A lady is a foreign land. Yes. It's a foreign world. Uh, nothing works as you expect it to. Nothing seems to be right. You feel awkward and ungainly in, in a woman's presence. Um, at, well, I certainly did when I was a teenager. Um, and it is. it does really encapsulate that sense of awkwardness. And you've got to remember, these are... British schoolboys, you know, right. we, we weren't, uh, you know, at the top of our game at 17 or 18. <laughs> right. um, and and plus we were also hampered by the fact that we were British. <laughs> I think it's a gentle poke at themselves, yeah. if you pardon the expression. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's also a, um, a a moment of levity in an album that, that really needs it yes. at this point. And I think it's great that our record company exec said, this will be a great single. Yeah, that still boggles me. Yeah, that uh, still blows my mind, no pun intended there either. And it's like, <laughs> I, yeah, like this was the single. Yeah. It's not representative of this album at all, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. So to single this out as the single, that must have been... Do you think it's because it had a chorus? Yeah. Like it followed a, a verse Maybe. chorus structure? Well, like are, I'm trying to... You've got to understand that record company execs are only ever thinking about the bottom line. So yeah. they're That's not like, thinking... Short song, yeah, yeah maybe they just it's looked catchy, at... They yeah. probably looked down the album like, all right, this one's only three minutes. And it's got happy chords. Yeah. yeah. I do like it you know, both during and kind of after the guitar solo, there's kind of a backing guitar that almost sounds like a banjo going through it, which is not a sound you hear in Genesis that much. And and it was kind of like, oh, that's a cool little little riff that's, I'm assuming, Steve, there. It didn't sound like a Mike Rutherford guitar part, but I was like, oh, that's that's kind of cool that it's right there. It's 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 I could see why, Stacey, you might have thought it was more of a hacked piece yeah. with the solo bit, with the very yeah, quirky yeah. guitar solo in there. And also that it is kind of a guitar-led track in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think it's it. I know that on the interviews for the for the album, Steve is kind of dismissive of the hook he came up with for the for the chorus, which is just wee wee. <laughs> like he's like that could have been better. So. You want a ringtone? I'll do that later on for you. Or Simon can edit it out here for you. So that's. Uh, but it was. It, it is kind of. And I never really thought about it. I was like, yeah, I guess it is kind of a little, like. It's it's not 
it's not overly creative in that way, but it does fit the song in some it ways. You know, it's not going to be like, it doesn't plus, just make sense. Plus the fact that that was the sound you had to make to get British women in a romantic mood. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, well, well, maybe that's why it went so badly. So <laughs> is that that's what guys thought was in there. I think it went so badly because no woman wants to hear, whippy! <laughs> whippy, yes, exactly. So that, That's a deal breaker right there. Yeah. I will say, I, I really, it took me a long time to realize that the last line of this song is about masturbation without you mankind handkinds through the blues that's your leather that's jacket. your leather yeah. jacket that was my leather jacket. <laughs> right <laughs> from the second i heard that i'm like and then you hear them at the end going all right i know what he's talking about that made me uncomfortable so sorry we apologize for all men, from all <laughs> no, men no, no. about this. Uh, I, I, you know, like I said, with, like back in New York City, within the context of this album and mm-hmm. from the character of Rail and everything around it, it's it's wonderful. And it, it, it does make me laugh. It's just, you know, yeah. my female perspective, um, you know, makes me interpret things uh, in certain ways. There could be a whole playlist made of horny Peter Gabriel songs. Oh, totally. I think this is on <laughs> like there. Like a box set. Volume so. one. Yeah. Volume <laughs> one. Kiss That Fraud, Digging in the Dirt, you know, different things that you're just like, hmm. This yeah, is... The Penis Chronicles is what I would call it. <laughs> well, this was them doing anything she does years before. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. Well, from one extreme to the other, we're moving from counting out time to carpet crawlers. There is lambs wool under my naked feet. The wool is soft and warm, gives off some kind of heat. A salamander scurries into flame to be destroyed. Imaginary creatures are trapped in birth on celluloid The fleas cling to the golden fleece hoping they'll find peace Each thought and gesture a card in celluloid There's no hiding in memory There's no wrong to Cover the floor in the red oak corridor. On my second side of people, they more lifeblood than before. They're moving in time to a heavy wooden door where the needle's eye is winking, closing on the This again with as within the cage, I think every list of classic Genesis songs will, will does include carpet crawlers. I mean, yeah. they played it many times in mm-hmm. concert. Even the next tour after the land, they played it on the Trick of the Tail tour, mm-hmm. Wind and Weathering tour. Yep, and I think even all throughout that, they played it as Simon mentioned, the last song on the reunion tour. Yeah. There's some 
affection that they have for this song, yeah. which has lasted for 40 plus years. If there's a quintessential Genesis song out there, this is it. I, I won't argue that there is one, but if if there is, this is it. I don't know. I think, to me, this is a, a singer's song. Mm. Um, and be, I say that because I think I said on our second out, Seconds Out podcast, probably both of them, mm. two of those, um, <laughs> you know, I love the, that version the most. Yeah. And Phil singing it, Phil owns it. Yes. He owns it after this album was released. Correct. But I have to say that, in my opinion, this is Gabriel's best song ballad ever. I mean, mm-hmm. it is gorgeous, and yeah. that's why you know I feel like the 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 vocal line in this mm-hmm. is the strongest part of it, and it really carries it. Um, so if you're a singer, and you can master this song, you will, you know, have everybody in the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. It's so so beautiful. It also has a very strange introduction in the fact that the song comes yeah. almost straight in with this set of chords, which almost feel like the 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 bridge section of the lamb right it basically is i think yeah and but then it settles into this very gentle very very sweet Mm -hmm. ballad um and it's a uh, this was the very first time that i ever realized that there was actually themes being echoed and it's a very strange thing because much like the leather jacket moment for me took me years to realize that 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 opening section and the rest of the song were actually quite separate pieces yeah Mm -hmm. Which is maybe why it was kind of dropped later on. I mean, this yeah. is a very wordy song. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, what is it, four or five verses in there. Yeah. And if you have that intro verse to it, it, I could see that, I could see why it could be dispensed with on later uh, performances. Of well, yeah, because it links, it, it is, it's, it's a, a lyrical link to the story. But yeah. if you're just singing it in a, a live set right. list... Yeah, do you need that? Do you, you don't. I don't think you need it. Yeah. It's it's a very and unique, probably yeah. Tony Banks hated it, so that's why. <laughs> <I'm trying. laughs> it's it's a very yearning song to yeah. me. Like even if again, if even if you don't know or think you know what the words mean, you can tell that it's this wistful kind of like I wish I was there type of song. I, or I want to be. Yeah, it is. Although it's not. It, it's you know, read, you no reading the about. lyrics you don't know what it says then the chorus is about the carpet crawlers feel feel their heed their callers it's like okay what does that mean yeah. but it, that speaks to the like i say again the vocal performance yeah. that phil and peter and we all put song. our own emotion into that yeah. like oh we're all we're heeding what's outside of us or exactly. for me you know that's kind of what i get from it i love that kind of steve's guitar through it is just this very he's called it the quietest guitar solo in history that yeah. is just throughout this song is the guitar is kind of doing this little melody mm-hmm. that's just echoing everything it's it's what they're all good at all together mm-hmm. so, watching him do it live yeah. you have more appreciation for it because you you can now going, but then you go back to the album and you hear it more because you've seen yeah. him do it live yeah. and and really come to the fore. And as as uh, Stacy said, a lot of these songs, the words just flow together. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what they mean. And I yeah. think this is the quintessential song where that is. Yeah. Uh, stickleback is a fish. It's like <laughs> well, I don't know what that means. Like I don't know yeah, what any of these means. Hates stickleback. stickleback, but the way that the words go together and the way that he flows them through his. His voice is just as it brings up an emotion which reading it on paper you wouldn't get the same thing mm-hmm. it's not like a love song where you could read the lyrics and you feel it even without hearing it 
here you could read the lyrics and I don't know what the hell is going on, <laughs> but you hear it and the emotion that both Phil and Peter brought to it. And it's, it's yeah. no wonder that this track has been a mainstay of their shows. Yeah. It feels very sincere when you right. listen to it. Mm-hmm. It has that build up, kind of like Grand Parade had, where it's, it starts off very slow and builds up. Mm-hmm. It's more subtle in this case, where the drums come in maybe on the second or third verse, mm-hmm. but it's a very, it's like a steady marching yeah. that kind of builds up. But it, it doesn't, doesn't peak, it doesn't go as high as Grand right. Parade does, but it's definitely an increase in intensity. Yeah. Yeah. Love good, it. Good song. Yeah. All right, change my mind. I love it. <laughs> there we well, with that, we'll uh, now kind of enter the Chamber of 32 Doors. Here's the thing that surprised me most in listening to this album uh, again recently. This is my favorite track on the album. Good reveal early on. All right. So what is it about this track that makes it your favorite? It's the lyrics. Uh, and mm. it was one of these uh, tracks which um, has 
two separate paces inside, built inside it. And it's almost like, and I can't say this is absolutely sure, but it's almost like Rail is talking to John and there's two sections. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of talking to one another. And it was the line, I'd rather trust a country man than a town man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I suddenly realised that it was, it felt conversational. It felt almost like one person was saying, this is my opinion. And another going, going yeah, but... And uh, and I loved that conversational tone through it, and um, I was amazed exactly how much I love this, and especially how it ends because this is the last track essentially yes. on side two, first record, yeah, uh, on on the first record. Um, and the other thing that I absolutely love is the way it's the way it finishes up with the back inside this chamber of so many doors. The whole band drops out, mm-hmm. and it's just the vocal and I think the keyboards at that point. And it it's the way it's the plaintive element of yes. it. It's the I am so lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have plaintive last verse sung so oh, well. There you, are, you see, <laughs> there you go. and it's just the way he says, "Take me away." It's that sense of um, going back to when we were talking on, on um, Cuckoo Cocoon, where he it's one of those heads up moments where he goes. Where the hell am I? I have no idea what's happening, and he's being drawn along. Yeah. I, I genuinely, it really surprised me how, how much I warmed to this track. It's definitely a track that that Peter really inhabits the lyrics in, and and you feel what he's going through. And that line that you talked about, I was like, the rich man stands in front of me, the poor man behind my back. They believe they can control the game, but the juggler holds another pack. You know, it's 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 again this duality of oh, you think it's one way, you think it's another, but really it's a third way. Yes. So I, it there's just so much about this that works lyrically, and then emotionally the connection. You know, he doesn't know he's down here alone with his fear, with everything that I hear, and every single door that I've walked through brings me back here again. No matter how much I'm trying to change, I keep they keep pulling me back. I get a sense of desperation. Yeah, that there's a real sense of it, and um, as you say, he um, he's able to sort of emote what is going on from the words in in his performance. I love how that the uh, the guys in the band are able to suddenly come together with these very positive, almost country like chords. Yeah. Slight country feel. <laughs> <laughs> we are, are We are. Yeah. We are. And it is. It's. And then it, it drops away again to these very sad chords. Yeah. And it's. Uh, I. I love that. And again, I, no one was more surprised than me to realise exactly how much I love this song. Do you, do you need a moment? I do. I'll be over here. <laughs> okay. I, I, you can uh, choose any one of these doors. Yeah. <laughs> the chorus has that very kind of sad chord progression to it, and it's just like, oh, it, it does just work emotionally in a lot of different ways here. It's a hidden gem. Yeah. Oh, my God. Did you just write... Hidden, oh, gem. hidden gem. Oh, you oh. You're copying my notes. <laughs> I um I love this song. I love it as the side closer. Yes. Like I think it's the best side closer they've ever done. Oh, oh God, it's and it is. I, and it's my favorite lyrics on the album, even though it's not my favorite track on the album. Um, I do think though it goes on a little longer than maybe it should. Yeah, like point. there's a there's a point every time I listen to this, and I know this album inside out. I know the song inside out, but I think it's gonna wrap up, yes. and it keeps going. Oh, there's another verse. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> we're not done yet. Um, yeah. But other than that, I think it's it's gorgeous. 
I'd say something, but Simon already said everything I'm going to say. Like, no, literally forbade him. But it's Same. it's a hidden gem on the album. Great way to end the right. album. I think just, it has, this song has lots of room to breathe, which I think they were happy to do a double album because they didn't have to condense as much yeah. sound into yeah. two sides as they could expand into four sides. So they were able to take this track and just have it some quiet moments, some moments without the band, just Peter, just at the very end, Peter and Tony. And it just, everything works for this song, where I think it's it's just tucked away at the in-between point between mm-hmm. sides one and two and three and four. It's kind of like right in the middle. And it's just, it's, it's a hidden gem, which it's it works for me so well. Yeah. And it makes you want to come back for more, right? Yeah. Yeah. How, how will we get out of this sadness? You got to count out time. <laughs> oh, wow. You got to hand kind. Through the blues, Mike. Hand kind through the blues. Mike. Kind, right. the blues. Right. Mike's always had a bit of trouble in zone had number seven. crawl on that carpet. So. <laughs> so now, gentle listener, we're going to give you a little bit of a break and leave you in suspense to think about the second half of this album. What will, what will Tom and Simon agree upon in part two? What song might be lightly sexual that Stacy will comment upon? And what am I going to say? I don't know. Will um, Rail find his penis? Uh, will Rail find his shooby dooby? <laughs> Come back next time. For part two of The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. We'll all be back. So bye, Tom. Bye, Mike. Bye, Stacy. Bye, Mike. Bye, Simon. Bye, Mike. Bye, Mike. Bye, Mike. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. I'd rather trust a man who doesn't shout what he's found.